From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Rivalry between the Crips and the Bloods, questionable anti-gang efforts, and signs of police corruption. A new book reads like fiction, but offers one account of a real Denver neighborhood. It traces some of the strife back to a vacuum left by civil rights leaders. After the civil rights movement and the takedown, really, of civil rights leaders, it left a lot of these communities without leadership and less opportunity, poverty, drugs, and gangs. We speak with the book's author about seven years of research into the story. Then issues of race have boiled over repeatedly during the legislative session. It's exposed deep divisions in lawmakers' views. Why are you yelling at me? Why are you yelling at me? Why are you yelling at me? While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. A new book takes a deep dive into the history of turf wars between gangs in Northeast Denver. It also examines efforts to quell the violence and questionable police tactics. The book zeroes in on several blocks that make up what's known as the Holly. The area was a central hangout for the gang The Bloods, as well as a center for anti-gang efforts in the city. Julie and Rubenstein spent seven years researching the book. It's called The Holly. Julian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrea. This book is unusual because a lot of the characters named are still very much a part of Denver life. They're people who work for the city, police, current and former gang members. The Holly, the area that you talk about, is its own character really in the book. Could you paint a picture of what the place looked like back in the 80s and 90s when a lot of the gang activity there solidified? Yeah. Uh, The reason I called the book The Holly was because it has been so representative both of the place and of the development in a lot of ways of the city. Back in the 80s and 90s, it was a shopping center that was for a while owned by Johnny Copeland, a well-known person from Northeast Denver, an African-American. He owned the liquor store there, which was a hangout and which that whole area, particularly the liquor store and the shopping center, became the headquarters of Denver's first blood gang. And they were battling the Crips. And how did this particular place become a center for the Bloods? Well, to me, in a way, it's sort of one of the most astonishing and interesting things. Let's remember that this was originally, uh, well, first it was a white neighborhood, then it became integrated, then it became an almost entirely black neighborhood, and it was also the center of Denver's civil rights movement, where in 1968, uh, a police shooting took place that really sparked and kicked the civil rights movement in Denver into another higher level with a lot of protests and actions. And it's... Interesting that after the civil rights movement and the takedown, really, this happened nationally, of civil rights leaders, it left a lot of these communities without leadership and falling into less opportunity, poverty, drugs, and gangs. And sure enough, exactly that happened to the Holly. 
Now, the Holly burned down in 2008. Explain the events that led up to that. That was yet another tragic event that happened in the life of the Holly Square. In 2008, the founder and leader of Denver's first Crips gang, Michael Asbury, was murdered. And within 24 hours, the Holly Shopping Center, in apparent retribution, was burned to the ground by nine Crips at that time called the Holly Nine. And it was the aftermath of that that really kicked off the phase that pushed the events toward what is the climax, in a way, of my book, which was the shooting between Terrence Roberts and Hassan Jones in 2013. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But basically, the Crips burned down a Bloods hangout. And did the Bloods kill Michael Asbury? As it turned out, the Bloods did not kill Michael Asbury, but that didn't matter to the Crips who believed that they did at that time. And the most obvious place to take retribution on the Bloods was to do something to the Holly Shopping Center. You really focus in this book on one man. His name is Terrence Roberts. He grew up in Northeast Denver. It's a historic black neighborhood in the city. And he was an active member of the Bloods. He was known as Showbiz in his gang days. What is it about Roberts that that made him the central figure in this book? Well, so at first I was interested in finding out what happened on this day that Terrence shot this guy, Hassan Jones. It was a mystery story at first to me that was sort of a, not a who done it, but more of a why done it. We knew who shot the, you know, fired the gun, but we didn't know why. But then once I got to know Terrence, it was very clear that he is such an incredibly remarkable person in just so many ways. He, to me, seemed to be representative of and symbolic of not only the life of the Holly, but even generations of black people and what they'd gone through. And what led Roberts to gangs early on in his life? Just like so many kids, I mean, he grew up in a a single parent home. He was looking for friendship, kinship, uh, colleagues, and also protection, because at the time, this was early on, not at the very beginning of the Blood and Crip War. And there were gangs in Denver before that, but that escalated it to another level. Terrence joined the Bloods in 1992, which was a few years after it all started. And at that time, the Crips and Bloods were already really in a war with each other. And Terrence, as a young man growing up, felt he needed protection. And the Bloods offered him that. And the 90s was really a time of extreme violence between the gangs. Yes. Uh, as some who've lived in Denver for a long time remember, we even had 93, was became known as the Summer of Violence. And in fact, it wasn't even the most uh, killings in that year. It just was dubbed that by the media, partly because of some uh, innocent civilians who had been caught in crossfires. A young boy. A young boy, a woman. I think there were three people that might have been killed that summer. And so the 90s, yeah, did seem to represent a serious escalation of this war. The Bloods and the Crips uh, each had their own territory, Bloods to the east of Colorado Boulevard in North Park Hill and Crips to the west in Five Points. Terrence Roberts, not surprisingly, uh, due to his gang activity, ends up in trouble with the law. He's in prison, and then he has this awakening of sorts. Talk about his transition from gang member to anti-gang activist. That was a very dramatic transition. One thing that's interesting about it is that there are a lot of gang members who actually do want to get out. And this is actually very important. And it was the reason that he was able to be successful in the way he was able to talk to 
many of those people. But for him, he finally had been through so many turns through the system that one night he was actually in the Denver jail and he ended up seeing on television there a documentary about Martin Luther King, who was killed at 39. He watched the mountaintop speech. He ended up crying all night and deciding that he was out. He had to get out. And in the morning when the other guys asked him, called him, what's up, showbiz? And he told them, that's not my name anymore. I'm Terrence. And he stuck with it. He stayed out. And he started doing anti-gang work. Well, at the time, he actually, that was the beginning of a sort of multi-year stint in the prison system. So he first was an anti-gang activist of sorts in the prisons. And it was actually a problem in the prisons because not only had he left the gang, which is very rare, and anyone, especially those prison wardens, know that if you do that, you're in danger because you can get beat for right. that. And he also was a high-level gang member. So he they had not seen that kind of thing in the prisons before. He stuck with it. He got out of prison and then almost immediately formed his nonprofit Prodigal Son Initiative to do anti-gang work. And then you've alluded to the shooting. The pivotal moment in the book is in 2013 when a supposedly reformed Terrence Roberts shoots a fellow blood named Hassan Jones, and Jones ends up in a wheelchair. After all of Roberts' anti-gang work, why would he pull out a gun? And this is really the, the question in the book. Yeah, exactly. How much time do we have? Because um, what I found was that ultimately to answer that question took me, you know, 350 pages and seven years of reporting. I really recognized that it's not only something that can be answered in a sort of typical traditional way, but you have to really look at all of what had come before. And that includes, you know, many things, including when you asked about the fire After the fire, many interests from outside the community got involved to redevelop that site. And Terrence was also interested in doing so, as were other community members. And in many ways, and that's why the book is called The Holly, the shooting ended up being in many ways about The Holly. Whose place was it, after all? Terrence actually was trying to keep it as a place where gang members wouldn't be. Hassan was kind of the bellwether at that time. The Bloods had really made a bid for that place again in the months before the shooting. And they were both fighting to win Hassan's allegiance. Terrence had the Colorado camo movement. The Bloods were the Bloods. And in the end, a series of events escalated. And Terrence said that he shot in self-defense. And ultimately, a jury agreed. Yeah. And the camo movement was a way to bring the Crips and the Bloods together. And I thought it was interesting that the development of the Holly. I mean, Terrence's, uh, Robert's big dream was to rebuild the Holly, and ultimately it happened. But Robert's really felt pushed out because other groups, developers, nonprofits, white people came in and sort of took over the process. Where did that leave him? He ended up almost like an enemy in his own country kind of thing. He was a third generation of that neighborhood, and he ended up feeling like the outside interests, which are powerful interests. I mean, let's remember it was among the interests and organizations that bought the Holly and controlled it were the city of Denver, the Urban Land Conservancy, which is a well-funded nonprofit, and the Denver Foundation. You also had the Boys and Girls Club, which came in, and you had the Anschutz Foundation, which funded the Boys and Girls Club. So you really had some of the most powerful interests in Denver. And Terrence felt that 
you know, there weren't any African-Americans being hired for the construction of the site. There was a Latino man who was hired to be the executive director of the Boys and Girls Club. He was the president of what was known as HARP, the Holly Area Redevelopment Project. He resigned in protest of how things were going. And let's remember, too, that at this time, his organization, Prodigal Son, was the lead organization on the ground in a federally funded anti-gang effort known as Project Safe Neighborhoods. It's the premier anti-gun and anti-gang program in the country. And he also was at odds with law enforcement over how to run that effort. So by the time the shooting happened, it wasn't only the Bloods who he was at odds with. It was all of those very powerful forces. And as you said, the jury agrees during the trial over the shooting that it was in self-defense. The victim, Hassan Jones, ends up in trouble with the law. What happened to him? Well, so, yeah, as you mentioned, he was he survived the shooting. He was paralyzed, yet it didn't seem to stop him. First, he was charged with a drive-by shooting. He went to trial and was acquitted on that. He also, however, was charged with the child abuse resulting in death of a two-year-old girl, his then-girlfriend's daughter, and he actually pled guilty to that. And he's now in prison. Uh, I think he's on a 20-year sentence. One of the key points in the book is this issue of informants, uh, gang members who get rewarded for letting the police know about gang activity. And you say that you can pinpoint those who are informants because they're the ones that get caught in a crime but get away with it. How much do informants help reduce criminal activity? Well, that's exactly a, kind of the big question. So informants are kind of the black hole of the criminal justice system. There's no laws regulating them, and there's very little paperwork or information. They're paid in cash. So the question is, what exactly are they doing? And you know, law enforcement will talk about how they're needed in order to infiltrate a gang, which otherwise you know, can't be done by an outsider. That may be true. But when you look at some of the uh, charges that these guys are facing, and you can tell for a variety of ways, sometimes there's something such as some of them end up on a witness stand where they have to say that they're an informant. Other times there might be a piece of paper that's findable in which you can prove it. And oftentimes the only thing available is the strange, you know, look at their criminal record in which there someone has some huge number of arrests but no charges and there's not a lot of explanations for that. So the question is, are these guys ultimately involved in something that is overall detrimental to the community? And I'll just say that community members in particularly these vulnerable communities, such as gang communities in Northeast Denver, feel that informants is one of the biggest problems in their community. Not to mention the fact that if you're found out to be an informant, then that creates more violence. For sure. And in the book and in the story, you know, informants do become a part of it. And you see it throughout the story where there's violence surrounding these people. And then there's the allegations of being an informant, which also become dangerous. And I'll just say that there's a few people that fall into these categories that ultimately my reporting showed were involved in plotting to and actually attacking Terrence Roberts on the day of this shooting. So... What happened on the day of the shooting, you say in your book, is that Terrence Roberts was targeted by gangs for the work he was doing. I say for sure that he was targeted because my reporting shows that. The question is exactly why. And it begs the question, I guess, why and was it related to the work? We know that the people who targeted him and including Hassan have significant close ties to the police 
on the witness stand, one police officer in Hassan's drive-by trial talked about being in phone contact with Hassan, which is something that no gang member can do that violates everything about what they're about. And so it is very suggestive of him having a tie such as being an informant with the police. So does his criminal record and all the charges that he didn't face, almost 24 arrests that didn't lead to charges. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it begs the question, given the proximity of all of these criminals to law enforcement and the fact that Terrence had fallen out with so many powerful interests, was there any connection? And this is something that I do delve into in the book. And, you know, you'll see where I get and you'll see where the community comes out. There's a lot of gray area. And I also do come up with some findings that I think are quite revealing. What are you trying to say in your book generally about the way government and law enforcement have handled gangs in Northeast Denver? You know, one thing that I think is very problematic is, so we discussed a little bit the Colorado Camo movement, which was a successful independent effort that Terrence Roberts started and had other former gang members involved with that had helped reduce gang violence in Denver. In 2010, it had fallen to an all-time low when the Camo movement was really going strong. That same year, Denver got a Project Safe Neighborhoods grant to fight gang violence in this neighborhood, Northeast Park Hill, where the Holly is, and which, by the way, other money is added to, and we, we want to bring it up to, you know, a higher level. So uh, there were a lot of, you know, crossover organizations involved in both efforts. And it, it, between 2010 and 2019, I was able to find that $16 million flowed into this neighborhood to both fight and study gang violence. It started when the the gang violence was at an all-time low, and it went up every single year mm. since then. So what it suggests to me is that the money is not necessarily working. We had an independent effort that was working really well, and maybe law enforcement shouldn't be involved in some of the outreach efforts and stick to their own area of what they do. And also we know, I mean, I, I can see and I found certainly in the book, that there are problems with the use of informants and the use of active gang members posing as anti-gang activists in these efforts. The active gang members replaced Terrence Roberts after he was basically removed from the neighborhood and charged with shooting Hassan, and that effort did not go well. Your book talks a lot about the gentrification um, that has gone on in Northeast Denver over the years. How has this had an impact on these neighborhoods and gang activity? Uh, that's a great question. The The book, in many ways, I feel like does chronicle the development of Denver in a lot of ways and development and ultimately as we often now call it, gentrification. When I went and looked all the way back, for example, I was the last journalist to interview Lauren Watson, the founder of Denver's Black Panthers. He was talking to me about how he was back in the early 70s protesting Denver's attempts to try to get a lot of the African-American community to move up to Montbello. They were talking about how there were no trees up there and they, you know, could easily fear and think that it was just not a great place to live and that they didn't want to live there. But they felt that they were being pushed out of some of the more desirable parts of the city where maybe white people wanted to live. And then I would just, you know, if we bring it all the way up to current day, I would say that it is interesting that the two original homes of the Denver's black community, Five Points and Northeast Park Hill, have 
become incredibly gentrified as well as the black population has just plummeted in the last decade there. So, I mean, the law enforcement forces, many in the neighborhood believe, show up in communities where they're trying to push out and get rid of black people and sort of help pave the way and work in step with developers. I can't prove that that's the case, but I can say that anecdotally it is the case. So what does gang life in Denver look like now compared to the world that you describe in the book? Uh, Well, I mean, it has become more dispersed, and that is something that has, I guess, sort of changed the way that gangs are operating. I mean, the difficult thing for a neighborhood like Northeast Park Hill is that the Holly Square, as much as it changes, and it has changed a lot to the point of being almost unrecognizable to what it was even five or six years ago. It has a Boys and Girls Club boys and, and been developed. Boys and Girls Club. And yeah, I mean, no matter how much that neighborhood changes, there are going to be bloods who hang on to that as their, you know, sort of sacred birthplace and home. But yes, you have now gang activity that's pushed into other parts and gang violence is not going down. It's still going up. Did you come away with any lessons about the best way to work with gang members to reduce violence in neighborhoods? Well, it's, you know, it, of course, it's a very difficult problem. And I would suggest that it's very much a societal problem in so many ways. I mean, one of the things that these guys really, of course, need and want is opportunity. They need and want to make money. And if there are opportunities for them to do so outside of it, that's one thing. Many of them really actually don't want to be in a gang, but feel they have no other choice that becomes their family. So we need to find ways that they have mentorship and programs that keep them doing things other than getting involved in criminal life. And these kinds of things, I would suggest, are things that can be done outside of a law enforcement grant, outside of what the traditional makeup has been. It's very hard to be an anti-gang activist and not take law enforcement money because the lion's share of that money and funding is through law enforcement. So there are efforts now, and it was similar to what Terrence was doing, in which, you know, powerful and capable former gang members who are wanting to do these programs can try to do it outside of the realm of law enforcement. And that's one start. The other way, by the way, I would just say is in this city, especially regarding gang violence, which is what I was looking into, there needs to be more transparency and more accountability. Right now, the way it's been running is not appropriate and there needs to be some action to end that. You yourself point out in the book that you're a white guy. Um, You grew up in a white section of Denver. Have you heard from people who say, what's this white guy doing trying to document the black community? So I definitely heard the criticism. And what I basically tried to do was cover a story that I thought was important and that the more and more I got into it, I saw that not only was it not being covered and no one else was covering it, but that it had been miscovered. And I just kept showing up, showing that I cared, listening, and ultimately, by paying attention, I won the trust of the people who were at the heart of the story. So I did my best to just be honorable and be ethical. And ultimately, one of the things that several people in the neighborhood said to me was that it may have actually been an advantage to me to be white because there's such a high level of mistrust among black men in black communities. And a lot of it has to do 
with the fact that there are so many informants in those communities and people don't know who's who. Julian, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Andrea. Julian Rubenstein is the author of The Holly. It's generated its share of critics and advocates. We reached out to current and former government officials, anti-gang activists, and others about the book. Jonathan McMillan was involved in the Bloods as a teenager. He knew Terrence Roberts and ended up going to prison for a couple of years before becoming active in anti-gang work. He told me that because the Holly was told through the eyes of Rubenstein and activist Terrence Roberts, it's just one of many perspectives about the recent history of Northeast Denver. This is a singular narrative presented as 100% fact. Um, I've always been taught that there's always three sides to every story. McMillan is now the director of youth violence prevention for the city and county of Denver, but said he'd only comment on the book outside of his work for the city. In the book, Rubenstein alleges that some former gang members who do gang prevention work still have connections to active gang members. McMillan told me those ties can be complicated. This is one of those things where it's just not as clear as black and white, whether you're in a gang, you're an active gang member, or you're not. Um, Some of the people who are doing the work, you know, anti-gang, or they have significant and very long-standing ties to the neighborhoods which they grew up in and the ties that go to those gangs. But that's also what makes them most effective. McMillan said former gang members are more credible when they speak with kids and are the best people to encourage them to choose a better lifestyle. I also spoke with former lawmaker Penfield Tate. He's lived in Park Hill in northeast Denver for years, and before that, five points. Tate told me he and others he's spoken to in the neighborhood say the book The Holly helped them connect the dots. I've lived around Bloods. I've lived around Crips. You know, I've seen some of their shenanigans. Didn't always understand the reasons why they behaved the way they did or what the nature of their beefs with one another were, but this book is enlightening. Tate served in the Colorado legislature and worked for former Mayor Federico Pena. He said the Holly sets the background for what's happening today by delving into the history of redlining and segregation in Denver. It shows some of the corruption, frankly, in local politics in dealing with the war on drugs and the war on gangs and how, I think in some instances, well-intentioned both federal and state policy were implemented in a fashion that simply did a disservice to the Black community. Penfield Tate, former state lawmaker, and Jonathan McMillan, a former gang member who's now a key figure in anti-violence work in Denver. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Social equity. Maybe you've heard that term. Maybe you're wondering, what does that even mean? Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Awad. I host CPR's podcast, On Something. 
This season, we're going to unpack that term, social equity, what it means for legal weed and what it can teach us about creating a fairer society. Billions of dollars are spent placing a war on drugs instead of to schools, to hospitals, community centers. And so there's more in the first episode of season three of On Something, everywhere you get your podcasts. When a Colorado lawmaker used a racially charged nickname for one of his colleagues this month, the exchange quickly became national news. But it was just the latest in a string of racial incidents at the state capitol this year. That's the focus of the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Here are public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland. Colorado's legislature has made national news this session more than once because of things lawmakers have said on the floor of the House. I'm getting there. Don't worry, Buckwheat. I'm getting there. I'm now, sorry. what I'd like to say, what I'd like to say, that's an endearing term, by the way. That's Representative Richard Holtorf, a Republican, using a name for a Democratic colleague that was immediately met with outrage. We must maintain order in here and not refer to any individuals other than in any inappropriate manner. So please do not do that any further. Mr. Sullivan. Mr. Holt, Why are you yelling at me? Why are you yelling at me? Why are you yelling at me? On this week's episode of Purplish, we will take a look at how Colorado lawmakers are handling deep divides over issues about racism, what it actually means to be racist, and how it's all playing out in the way they treat each other on the floor of the chamber. So, Benta, I know you want to talk about a few of these different incidents. Take us through what was happening there in that audio that we played at the start of the episode. You know, it's not normally the reason the state wants to make national news. Why did it become national news? Right. Yes, I think that's true. People didn't want attention on Colorado for this particular reason. So to back up a little bit, uh, we we heard that tape from Representative Richard Holtorf. He's a Republican, and he was addressing Democratic Representative David Ortiz. And for a little context, both of these uh, lawmakers are pretty new to the chamber. Yes, that's right. This is their first legislative session, actually. They're first-year lawmakers. And Holtorf was at the microphone. This is kind of the center of the chamber where lawmakers stand when they're discussing and debating legislation. And Holtorf was offering an amendment to a bill. Hmm. And he was countering something Ortiz had said earlier. And the the two of them had a little bit of a back and forth. And here's how Ortiz describes it. He mentioned me by name, except he said the wrong county. He was like, well, you know, my veteran peer from Jefferson County. And so I was like, Arapahoe, if you're going to say it, get it right. Like, that's how I started. And then he started talking about the Geneva Conventions and about rules of engagement, which in my mind had nothing to do with the amendment whatsoever. And so I was like, to the bill. Okay, so this doesn't sound that uncommon so far. You know, they're kind of arguing a little bit about protocol. Did Holtorf say the right county? Was he staying on topic or not? But then Holtorf said this phrase that went national, right? Yes. And that's when Holtorf said, Looking at Ortiz, I'm getting there. Don't worry, Buckwheat. I'm getting there. And so, like we said, this quickly prompted outrage in the chamber and then started spreading on social media, on the news. I saw the video online almost right away. And I have to tell you that, like, I knew immediately that's something you shouldn't be calling your your colleague. It's Mm -hmm. obviously denigrating. But uh, I wasn't aware of the exact history of Buckwheat as a racial stereotype and as a slur. 
And so what it actually means, as I quickly learned, is it's popularly a reference to a black character, a little boy on Little Rascals, mm-hmm. a show that dates to the 30s. And obviously it was a very tokenized and racialized character. And so it's become a slur and a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And I think for some lawmakers, it you know we had heard it took them right back to that earlier time in history. And a lot of people clearly knew the meaning. Mm-hmm. Holtorf told me he didn't know what it meant. Um, he does now understand that other people, especially black lawmakers and not just black lawmakers, saw it through a much different lens, through a racial lens. People were shocked. People were upset. But Holtorf said he didn't know all that history there. And my narrative is very different than their narrative and their understanding. Um, remember, we have to uh, understand that there are different meanings for different words for people that come from different places. And what is unfortunate is I don't think we have the patience because of this racially charged environment we're in in this country to listen and get things in context before we jump to conclusions. Maybe we should add a little context here. He was speaking to Representative Ortiz, who is Latino, not black, but it was still the uttering of the phrase that was really the problem. Right. I I think that's absolutely correct. And... You know, there have been several incidents, which which we'll talk to, but this was very disruptive on the House floor. It was like the equivalent of hearing any other slur for some people. Right. And Democratic Speaker Alec Garnett talked about this, and he said he talked to one member who really felt like these type of comments prevented that person from doing their work at the Capitol hmm. and brought them back to a very, very dark place in American history. And Alec Garnett, who's white, said, even if you didn't know what this term meant— Everyone who is in that chamber needs to be respected. People won their offices Mm. and you need to address people appropriately. And that uh, comes first and foremost with the title that every one of my colleagues has earned, which is representative. Anything that strays from that, especially into the a pejorative racially charged comment is 100 percent inappropriate, has no place in this chamber whatsoever. Yeah, and you can see how even if you remove all that racist history of that particular word, like calling someone buckwheat at best is like calling them like spud or bucky or kiddo. It's diminutive. It's disrespectful, right? That's exactly right. Um, One thing that that happened after this incident is Representatives Ortiz and Holtorf spent some time alone together. They actually went to a cigar bar. They were in a committee hearing together and then went out afterwards. And Ortiz told me he does see Holtorf as a friend. They're both veterans. They have a bond over that. I mean, bottom line is anybody that served in the military is family to me. And we all have family members that will get up and embarrass us from time to time. And again, this is not trying to excuse any of it. It also comes from a place of the fact that he is a veteran wanting him to be better and wanting to be a part of helping him come to a better place. So that's a little surprising to me to learn the the nuance of their relationship. They have some shared life experience. Mm-hmm. They're kind of finding a way to reconnect. You don't always get that from the viral moment, right? I, I think that's exactly right. It it goes beyond that moment that's just captured that people see that's a mm. few seconds. And I asked Ortiz a little bit about how that conversation went with Holtorf when we didn't have the cameras, you didn't have the microphones. It was just the two of them. I mean, it's, it's so multifaceted when it comes to, I want what's best for him on a personal level. I want him to learn and grow from this so that we don't have to do this. I want that for the institution too, because we're supposed to represent the best in our communities. And it, it really starts with the example that we set. Well, like family, 
lawmakers are kind of stuck with each other, at least for a couple of years, have to be in the same building and <laughs> you can see why they might try to work it out. That's happening behind the scenes at cigar bars and whatnot. <laughs> What's happening back in the chamber? Well, um, just recently, I actually took a picture of Holtorf and Ortiz sitting next to each other on the floor because they were the main sponsors of a bill they were working on together. So they are still working together. Beyond that, Holtorf has publicly apologized to the entire chamber. Hmm. He went to the House floor and he started by saying that the institution demands the highest level of decorum and deserves everyone's commitment to do their best. And he said it, it starts with him. It is a blessing to learn about our experiences from different parts of this state. I hope you all understand that I see all of you as my brothers and sisters, all created by God and all equal. I cherish working with you each and every day. And Mr. Speaker, I especially appreciate your leadership. I look forward to working with you in the future under your guidance and leadership. You all have my sincerest apologies. Well, so maybe that brought an end to that particular tiff, which got a lot of attention. But this really wasn't the only time something like this has happened this session. A case where another lawmaker said that the three-fifths compromise wasn't demeaning anybody's humanity. That was the agreement that black people should only count as three-fifths of a person for purposes of congressional representation. Uh, there was a joke about lynching. There was someone else who shouted into the chamber that he's not a white supremacist and he can't change the color of his skin. What have you heard from black lawmakers about the tenor and these comments in the room? Well, I sat down with Democratic Representative Jennifer Bacon, and I really wanted to talk to her because she said she's gone out for lunch or coffee with a number of Republicans after they've said things that she's had concerns about. Well, what yes. why, before we get into it, why did she say she's doing that? Well, first off, Bacon said she wasn't coming into this legislative session as a first-year lawmaker anticipating having these conversations. Yeah. She's She said she's had them in other jobs, and so she's done this work before, but she wasn't starting the session thinking this would be a huge part of her first yeah, session Yeah, thinking here. she'd have to be the diversity and equity educator. She wants people to understand her experience of racism, systemic racism, Black people's experience— mm. She feels that other people are doing that work, too. But she says if she doesn't do it, who is going to do it? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, she said when she hears colleagues saying there aren't problems, um, it invalidates her own life experience. My blackness does not go away. People are like, put the card away. This is not a card. OK, when I walk into a room, some people see black before they even know what my name is. The reason why we talk about it is because it happened to us, you know, and it happened to a lot of people here. So when they say you're trying to divide, you are denying who I am. That is why it's painful. So it sounds like she's been talking to other lawmakers about the continuing presence and effects of, of what of racism in American life, right? Right. And, you know, some of these incidents that we were mentioning, the three-fifths compromise and, and that type of thing, came up on bills where the legislature was discussing media literacy and civics education mm. and what should be included uh, in school education around mm. those issues. You know, Bacon said she feels that there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be racist or what racism is. And she said she wants people to understand that you can do harm to someone without explicitly intending to. You know, the country has done a good job to kind of like define a racist as like an act of Klansman that you come in with your hood on or you wake up 
with malice and intent, you know, like hurtful intention in your heart saying, I'm going to call you the N word and you don't get to sit here. But that's not what it is. Because I've asked people this. I'm like, if this country made it a point for 200 of its 250 years to have laws that codified what race is, but also what people can't do because of their skin color, you know, they codified it because it was supposed to have an impact and was supposed to shape some sort of outcomes here. Why do we think it didn't work? You know what I'm saying? And so we have to be intentional in undoing that. So what that reminds me of is that this is not just about people saying the wrong things about racial comments, racist comments. It's also about the fact that lawmakers more and more often are talking about race and racism as they talk about our systems and policies. They're talking about the racial and racist effects of our existing system. I think that's exactly right. Um, When I've talked to some Republicans, they feel like these conversations are maybe being overplayed or used in a context where they don't apply. There was an incident uh, on the floor where a couple lawmakers said systemic racism doesn't exist. And that came out of a discussion on a a bill you've covered on a public health care option. Some of the proponents, one of the reasons they were arguing for it is undoing systemic racism. So you're right. It's a topic that comes up in a lot of policy discussions. Let's define systemic racism. As I understand it, it's not the idea that written into our laws are a lot of things that say black people can't do this or Latino people can't do this. It's more the idea that, you know, most notably black people began their history in this country in chains as slaves with nothing. And that centuries later, we still see that the net income and net wealth of black families is dramatically lower than white families. And that we have all these racial effects in terms of how people are treated in the criminal justice system, for example. So while many of our current laws and rules are colorblind, are not explicitly based on race, they continue to have racist effect. It's racist in effect, if not in the way it's actually worded. Right. And I think these issues are coming up a lot more frequently this session than I've heard before. So not that the topic of racism and racial justice has never been discussed in the legislature, it has. But it's much it's featured much more prominently now. And I think that is because of just internationally and nationally, it's been a focal point this last year. And Hmm. black lawmakers I've talked to point out that this history isn't 400 years ago. You know, uh, we have lawmakers in the legislature who've lived through some of that. I, I remember one of the most poignant moments on the House floor was when Janet Buckner talked about her childhood, not learning how to swim and being banned from her local swimming pool for being black. And in fact, the only time she was allowed to swim in that pool was the night before the water was going to be clean. Well, if the growing point among like liberals and progressives is that we need to redesign the system to stop delivering these racially disparate results, you know, I've asked Republicans about like their thoughts on these divides. And, you know, one response I'll hear is that like we need to embrace uh, conservative ideals to make the economy grow faster and lift all boats. Have you heard any other um, response to this idea? I I talked to Republican Representative Mark Baisley Mm -hmm. about this, and he made this point that a lot of lawmakers would probably get along really well if they didn't talk about these issues. You know, when you think of being out in the real world, there may Mm. be people you're close to, but don't talk politics or don't talk about racial justice. I mean, this stuff is going around us, but I don't know how much people are talking to Mm. their friends and family necessarily. But he, he said that Lawmakers obviously don't have that chance. They're there to have these discussions. He feels like sometimes the issue of systemic racism is being used to divide people 
and used in policy discussions where he doesn't see it being relevant. Most of us white folk are just going, what? Why is that applied to me? I don't apply that to me. I don't behave that way. I don't think that way. That's an offense in and of itself. It really seems to be a very deliberate program towards some goal. And I have to assume that it's a, that division in the community benefits somebody. And so they're trying to keep that alive. So that there's a very fundamental kind of disagreement there on what systemic racism means, where it should be applied, how often it should be brought up. Yeah. And, I, you know, a lot of that goes to like the central divide between liberals and conservatives, which is like if the state of the world is that we keep getting these racial effects from our systems, then for liberals, that is another point that we need to make change. And that's the opposite of what conservative philosophy is, which is like the bones of the country are like good and sound. But regardless, that kind of raises this like interesting divide over like whether people with radically different worldviews can still be friends when they hold like such different opinions. Um, can you be friends with someone whose policies you think really hurt and damage you? It mm -hmm. seems like some lawmakers are figuring out a way to do this in the chamber. Yeah, I think it depends. You, you, everyone has different personalities, obviously. But I think one thing that's made that a little bit harder this session, and I've heard this from lawmakers across the political spectrum, has been the result of COVID-19. Because there's typically a lot of forums in the evening, mixers, mm. events that they're going to and talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Even on the floor, the chambers, people are a little bit more divided. And so when you go to those events, you get to know a little bit about someone. You know, do they have a dog? Do they have kids? Yeah. And I think when you deeply disagree, but you know a little bit more about someone, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't know Mark Baisley grew up in Puerto Rico. When I talked to Representative Holtorf, I learned that he was born in Spain. I didn't know that, you mm. know? So it's just little things you learn about people. When you do have those deep disagreements, you express that disagreement maybe differently when when you, you see the person more as a person. And I've heard, heard that from both sides. Mm. Like people don't see, see each other as people as much. Yeah. It's like that person you argue with at the microphone versus having those lighter moments. And I, I think that'll start to change as, as COVID lifts. I think a lot of members in both parties do try to have those conversations. I think Bacon's taking it to the next level with how many she's had, but people are trying to have have a good relationship where they can. Well, that's what's fascinating about the legislature. You know, 100 people, right, who uh -huh. are by definition from totally across the spectrum, yep. all having to get along in a building with very poor air conditioning and <laughs> cameras running and microphones running, and then you see what happens. <laughs> and on very little sleep. And if you're anything like me, that tends to make people grumpier and more on edge. And so, you know, this has been about some tough discussions mm -hmm. this episode. I do want to point out that there have been a lot of tough sessions for hmm. different reasons. And so even though some of these comments on the microphone in the House are unique and this is really, really difficult, there's been other sessions that have kind of, I think the speaker told this to me, the train's gone off the track. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that, that happens every session. But it's, it's volatile and emotions are high and, you know, it is important work yeah. and everyone's in that room together. So it's something's bound to happen. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon because, you know, I think a part of democratic politics now is saying we live in an equitable society and they want to use government to fix that. So kind of to end on a hopeful note, 
Representative Bacon said that, you know, she really wants to focus on how we can help other people understand each other's perspectives and experiences. And, you know, she sees the legislature, people representing different geographic parts of the Mm -hmm. state from different backgrounds, really as a strength. And, you know, Baisley and and Republicans see that as a strength, too. And Baisley recently uh, lost his father. His father passed away. And he said so many lawmakers said such warm words, lifted him up reached out to him. And so at its core, I think there's a lot to work with there as they move forward. Yeah. And I I don't think these conversations are static. So I think both of us are looking forward to seeing kind of where it goes from here. Public affairs reporters Andrew Kenny and Benta Berkland and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Special thanks to Megan Verlee and Pedro Lumbrano. I'm Andrew Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.